Welcome. I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. To start off this very first episode of Crime Biscuit, let me tell you real quick who I am. My name is Paulette. That is my middle name. My first name is Nancy. But as with most of us, I believe that there are multiple parts to all of us. Nancy is very um, responsible and takes care of the day-to-day business of living. Paulette, however, has written and self-published three urban fantasy novels. She's also teaching herself how to do audiobooks and not sound like an idiot while doing it. But she is me and I am her. So I'm going to go back to the first person before you shut this podcast off. I'll tell you what I am is a complete and utter true crime fan. I have been fascinated with serial killers for as long as I can remember. I wanted to share that love with other people. And so here I am. I'll tell you what I am not. I am not an FBI profiler. I am not a crime scene analyst. I am not an expert on crime. I am not myself a serial killer that I know of. I do have this endless fascination with the criminal mind, and I thought, why not share it with other like-minded individuals? So I'm just a fledgling to this podcast world, so it's just me. That should mean no banter, though I can't promise I won't talk to myself now and then. So pull up a chair and let's dive right into that crime biscuit, shall we? For my very first episode, I wanted to do Herbert R. Baumeister, who I'm going to call the homegrown serial killer because he is from my home state of Indiana. So he was born and raised here, and I do want to point out that if you would do any reading or research on your own about Herbert, you will notice that you will find a lot of pseudonyms used for some of the people that were involved in this case. Uh, So if you see some differences in names, um, I apologize. Uh, I decided on one of the main characters that I would use the name he um, has most people use when talking about this case. So anyhow, um, I got a lot of my information on the people and kind of their mindset from the book, The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm by Richard Estep with Robert Graves. I did get some info from Murderpedia, all that's interesting and all kinds of different websites, but here we go. Herbert Baumeister was a successful business and family man and he was known in his community as Weird Herb. I got a little taste of this myself when I saw some video footage taken back in the day with Herb standing in front of his property and he is talking to a news crew that he had called or had reported this and they showed up about a road crew that was painting yellow striping on the road that ran in front of his property and there was a dead raccoon there. And here's this man, kind of normal looking, maybe a little odd, but not, you know, anything that would trip any alarms in anyone meeting him talking about how he had said to his son look at that raccoon I bet they won't even move it they're gonna paint right over it and he tells this news anchor that yes he got out and took a picture and that these people are so lazy and look they did paint right over this dead raccoon's head now what's really interesting kind of ironic is that he makes some comment to the effect that oh this poor thing deserved a better fate than that you know what to truly appreciate Herb I am going to play a little clip of that. Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I said to my son, they're going to hit that raccoon with a spray gun, and sure enough, they just strike right over his face and neck. You know, didn't even move it. You know, no effort to, you know, get it out of the way. 
just happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot of the thing. A raccoon, which met its demise on the yellow line, became one with the paint. The raccoon has since been removed. This is all that's left. This was just, you know, a, a painter should have had a chalk line drawn around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. Keep that in mind, that he thought this raccoon deserved a better fate than a paint stripe over its head. So let's go back in time a little bit and talk about Herb. He was born on April 7th in 1947. He was born in Indianapolis to Dr. Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister. He was one of four children, typical kind of middle-class family. His dad was an anesthesiologist at Methodist Hospital. So little Herb, when he was in elementary school, started kind of exhibiting some rather odd behaviors. He apparently urinated on or in a teacher's desk. He also put a dead crow in a teacher's desk just to see how the teacher would respond. He apparently also asked other children what they thought it would be like to drink their own pee. So none of this is criminal behavior, but it doesn't seem particularly normal. It almost seemed like maybe he had kind of lost his ability to judge, you know, right from wrong or what is acceptable from what is not. He was also known to be quite disruptive in class. So due to some of these things, I'm guessing Dr. Baumeister kind of felt like mm, maybe my son's got an issue. So he had some psychological testing done. Now, there are no, there's not a whole lot in the way of records, but I did read in multiple places that the result of that testing was schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder. Now, there isn't any record of whether they got treatment for Herb or not. Let's take a quick little detour here and just talk about schizophrenia real quick. It is a serious mental disorder that is also very hard to diagnose. If you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, it's generally because you interpret reality abnormally. So this can be like a combination of hallucinations, it can be delusions, disordered thinking. The hallucination part of it can be hearing or seeing things that don't exist, but it seems that hearing voices is the most common way that it presents itself. The disoriented thinking or speech, really the thinking part is kind of inferred from the speech part of it. So effective communication is impaired, and in some really rare instances, uh, people suffering from schizophrenia will put together a bunch of meaningless words, and um, this is referred to as word salad. So obviously there are some negative symptoms associated with this, mostly um, a reduced or lack of ability to function normally. They might neglect their hygiene and they generally don't make eye contact. In men, this typically starts and diagnosed in the mid-20s and the women late 20s. Now it is uncommon for children to be diagnosed. And we just mentioned that Herb was diagnosed as a child. Um, later on in the week, I'm going to put out a smaller episode called A Half Biscuit, and we're going to talk about um, schizophrenia and some of the biggies that were diagnosed with it, and we'll get into that a little more. But back to Herb. So Herb gets out of elementary school. We go to high school. He's a pretty average student, but he fails socially. So this school's extracurricular energy was really focused on sports, particularly football. And so this was the click. This was the big thing to be involved in. And Herb, who was really pretty in awe of this group, you know, wanted to gain their acceptance, but he was not accepted. He was rejected. And Herb was kind of an all or nothing type of guy. So if he was not going to be accepted into the group, he was just going to be alone. So he pretty much finished high school that way alone. 
1965, he enrolled at Indiana University. And he had a declared major of anatomy, so maybe he's thinking he's going to be a doctor like his dad. Um, he was not very successful there as well, uh, struggled. I think he made it through one semester, dropped out, re-enrolled, um, never did finish. But while he was there, he did meet um, his future wife, Juliana Sater. After he dropped out in 67, he went back to Indianapolis and he got a job there as a copy boy with the Indianapolis Star. While he was working there, he's kind of known for being childlike and eager. And by all accounts, he was constantly seeking approval from the people above him. And I guess that gets a little irritating. Kind of unsatisfied with the way things are going there, he decides to move on and he gets a job at the Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Okay, now let me back up one second. Um, so this is one year after he got married. He supposedly had an emotional breakdown over a car problem. And apparently it was bad enough that his father uh, had him committed to a psychiatric hospital for two months. And it was after he was released from the psychiatric hospital that he went to work for the BMV. Now, I don't know what kind of vehicle problem he was having. We all find vehicle problems annoying, yes, but I don't think most people have emotional breakdowns or psychiatric episodes due to car problems. So this probably says a little something about what's going on in, in Herb's head that he would react so over the top to something like a car breakdown. So now we go back to he's out of the psychiatric hospital and he gets a job at the BMV. Now his behavior here is completely different. Where he was eager and childlike at the other job, at this one he's kind of known for being bossy and aggressive and lashes out at people for no particular reason. In fact, for Christmas one year, he sent all of his coworkers a card. And the front of this card was a picture of him and another man dressed in drag. So mind you, this is the 1970s, so that wouldn't, been, wouldn't have been considered very funny. And especially since he's known for being really aggressive and kind of gnarly, like why would you send your coworkers this card that whether you thought it was funny or not, but anyways, even though he had kind of these really poor working relationships, after a few years, he did get promoted to program director. So it looks like maybe things are finally going Herb's way. But in 1985, he decides to urinate on a letter that he has addressed to then-Governor Robert Orr. Well, needless to say, he gets fired over that little incident. He's going to have to work some little odd jobs and stuff to help support his family because they have three children at this point. They had had a daughter in 79, a son in 81, and another one in 84. So here's an interesting little side note since we're talking about children. I read in more than one place that Julie later admits that she and Herb only had sex six times in their 25 years of marriage. Take that for what it's worth. But despite that, Herb did appear to be a really devoted husband and father. He was known to frequently take his children to Lake Wawasee, where his parents had a condo. So here's a little bit of um, personal Indiana trivia for you here. Lake Wawasee is the state's largest natural lake that is wholly within the borders of Indiana. And I used to go there quite frequently as a teenager. So I was a teen in the 80s, and if you're following the timeline, that means that I was there the same time that this lovely man and his um, family were also going there. 
So, and if you're also listening, you can probably figure out about how old I am if you do the math. But anyways, back in 1985, he was arrested near Lake Wabasee while visiting there for drunk driving hit and run. Now, for some reason, he gets off with just a slap on the hand. Then six months later, he's charged with stealing a friend's car, which I don't have friends that I think would steal my car, but that's not much of a friend. Regardless, he also beats those charges. So I don't know who was pulling strings for her, but he seems to get away with quite a bit. So in 1986, Dr. Baumeister passed away. And in 1988, Herb, who has been working like some little odd jobs and stuff after getting fired from the BMV, and Julie is still supporting the family. And one of these odd jobs, it is at a thrift store. And he kind of gets the idea that he could do something similar to that. So they approach the newly widowed Elizabeth Baumeister and borrow $4,000. They use this money to start a thrift store that they called to save a lot. Now, if you're from Indiana, you may have seen one of these. Um, now they're more of a like discount grocery store, not really a thrift store. Um, but at the time they created it, it would be like used items that they would sell. And then the proceeds, um, part of it would go to the charity, um, the Indianapolis Children's Bureau. And then the Baumeisters themselves kept a, a portion of it for personal income for operating the business. So this first store did really well. So they went ahead and opened a second one in 1990. This is how they got their money. And by all outward appearances, it looked like that this was just a um, up and coming family that had succeeded and made something of themselves. No one knew that Herb had a secret and that that secret involved the gay community. As Herb kind of um, begins to spiral downward emotionally and because of things happening in his life, so do his stores. He starts being rude to his employees and his customers, and the stores look like crap. And so this things are not going well for the Baumeisters internally, um, and people are starting to kind of see it. So meanwhile, in Indianapolis's gay community, there is this growing number of young men that are either being found dead or they're missing. It seemed to kind of start in 1985 with the death of 17-year-old Eric Rodiger. His body was found not too far from the side of I-70. In 1989, Stephen Elliott had been found in Hancock County along I-70. And then uh, 32-year-old Clay Boatman's remains were also found along I-70 between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio. So between the time this started and 1990... Um, nine other bodies were found on that same kind of stretch of road. Now, they were all strangled. It's really hard to find details other than that, but, um, and they are all from the gay community. So even though none of these were definitively attributed to Herb, Julie later told authorities that Herb routinely traveled that road for business, and she said that he traveled it more than 100 times. So I think 100 times, you know, gives Herb a lot of opportunity to get up to no good. Um, but regardless, in 1991, all of the bodies stopped being found along that stretch of road. And guess what also happened? Herb had moved his family to Fox Hollow Farm. Coincidence? I don't think so. So let's talk about Fox Hollow Farm. This is an 18 and a half acre estate that at the time had an asking price of 979000 So apparently this was a bargain at the time for an estate that large. It's got a winding drive, trees, horse fencing, a swimming pool, 
in the basement. Now, I don't know anybody that has a swimming pool in the basement, but but more power to you. So while they're living there, the kids, the Baumeister kids, attended private school, and they appeared to do very well. At the time, the family business was kind of chugging right along. But at the same time, in the downtown indie bar scene, young gay men are still going missing. In May 93, Michael Riley and Johnny Bear go missing. In July, Jeffrey Jones and Richard Hamilton go missing. Then in August, Alan Livingstone go missing. So the talk is that it is a serial killer. Not law enforcement, but the people are, you know that go to these bars and know these people that are missing. The, the rumor's starting. Someone's up to something, taking these men. It's got to be a serial killer. So we move a little forward to 1994, and now Stephen Hale goes missing. In June of 94, Alan Broussard goes missing. And then in July, Roger Goodlett goes missing. Now, I don't know if you've noticed something here, but these all happened in the warmer months of the year. We have April, May, June, July, August. All of these men, the, the last few that I spoke about, were reported missing by family members. Alan Broussard's family, as a matter of fact, can, um, gets a hold of a private detective named Virgil Vandegrift. Now, Virgil is a retired sheriff, and he was a polygraph expert. In July, when Roger Goodlett goes missing, they also contact him, and they hire Virgil to look into what happened to Roger. So Virgil goes to the gay bars, and he starts talking to people. He starts putting up posters. At the same time, the Indianapolis Police Department is working on it. Um, you know, the Missing Persons Division is working on it. There isn't a whole lot of info, but there is this common thread that all of these men have gone missing from the same basic area and all were last seen at one of these downtown gay bars. And they also make the connection that they're all happening in warmer months. And you're going to see before too long why that is. So it's the mid-90s and a man walks into a bar. And no, this is not a bad joke. He is staring at one of Roger Goodlett's missing posters that Virgil Vandegrift had put up. A bar patron named Tony Harris, not his real name, walks up to this man. The man introduces himself as Brian Smart and says that he is a landscaper from Ohio. So Tony asks Brian, do you know Roger Goodlett? Because, you know, this guy's been standing there for quite a while looking at this poster. The man, Brian, says no. But he starts asking Tony some questions and he seems very intent in looking at this poster. Tony will later say that Brian's responses and questions were really kind of cold, like he didn't really care, so why, you know, is he asking? They go ahead and talk for a little bit, and after a while, Brian invites Tony to go swimming at his employer's indoor pool. Tony agrees. Brian wants Tony to drive separately, but Tony doesn't want to, and here, here is his reason why. Tony says that all of these other gay men are gone missing, and he thinks it's better if they ride together. Because if Tony should also turn up missing, people will see his car at one of those gay bars, and they'll come looking for him sooner if they see his car there. I'm sure you figured it out, but Brian Smart is Herb Baumeister, and he is the one responsible for the missing and dead men. It's kind of um, ironic that Tony is there saying, I want to leave my car in case I go missing, and he's actually talking to the person who is responsible. Anyways, Brian, and I'm going to keep calling him that because we're talking about Tony, and that's at this point who Tony thinks he is. So Brian takes Tony to this place that's supposedly his employer's, and Tony recalls a sign, it's dark, and he does remember the word farm. 
So when they get to the house, it is totally dark. Brian claims that the power is out, but tells Tony that it is on in the basement where the pool is. So he takes Tony through this side door, and um, this house is packed with furniture and boxes. Um, they go uh, down a set of steps into a large rec room that has a wet bar that is connected to the pool. And so this area might have seemed nice, except for this odd array of clutter and a bunch of mannequins. Tony changes, and then he gets into the pool. They have a little chit-chat, talk a little bit. And then Brian out with this statement, I know a neat trick. Brian goes on to show Tony two spots on his own neck and says, Now, if you push on them hard enough, you will have the best orgasm of your life. Basically, what he's talking about is autoerotic asphyxiation, which is a mouthful to say. Brian somehow convinces Tony to do it to him. I don't know if he gives Tony the uh, pool hose, but I, I believe that's what happens. And so Tony is kind of choking Brian with it while uh, Brian masturbates. After they're done, Brian says, now it's your turn. So Tony agrees, but things start getting a little bit out of hand. Some internal alarms must be going off. So Tony pretends to pass out. Then he acts like, okay, he's coming back out of it. He's waking up again. And he says that Brian seems completely freaked out. Brian says it's because Tony passed out. Now, according to Tony, he confronts Brian at that point and, and says, you're the one hunting the gay men and I'm going to tell the police. I can't really get a true sense of, of why on earth, if this is true, Brian slash Herb didn't do something about it at that point, but he doesn't. And so whatever, for whatever reason, um, Tony stays and parties all night with Brian and is intimate with him after the whole strangulation thing. At some point, Brian has passed out, so they have been drinking heavily. And according to Tony, Brian was uh, snorting coke. So while Brian is passed out, Tony sneaks around the house and he sees women's clothing. He sees things that would belong to children. He at one point claims that he was digging through a pair of pants, uh, men's pants, uh, but he stops when Brian wakes up. So, you know, we have to say, well, maybe if he'd have found a wallet or something, he would have found out that Brian was actually Herb. Apparently didn't happen. So in the morning, he convinces Brian to take him back to the bar where Tony's car is. And Brian tells Tony when they get there that he had a great time and wants to see him again, and they make plans for the following week. After Brian leaves, Tony goes to Virgil Vandergriff, tells him about what happened, and Virgil tells him, if Brian comes back next week, you need to get his license plate. But Brian never shows. So now I'm going to detour here, and I want to talk a little bit about this um, Tony and Brian relationship. So in that book I mentioned earlier, The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm, um, years and years later, they did an interview with Tony. Now, a, a good chunk of this book is dealing with like paranormal and supernatural activity and stuff, which is not at all what I'm interested in. I'm interested in, in you know, the facts of the case and and Herb himself and his psyche. But I think this is kind of interesting. Tony talks about Herb really kind of fondly. And he claims that he and Herb were lovers for quite some time. And he says that Herb referred him to himself in third person and called Herb the owner of Fox Hollow Farm. So I guess when Herb picks Tony up at the bar and says, I'm going to take you to my employer's place, you know, maybe in some weird way, that's, that's why that statement came out. But Tony says that he 
sometimes, you know, because he talked about himself, about Herb in the third person, he would sometimes refer to Herb as HB. And Tony says that the mannequins are there because, quote, the owner does not like to be alone, unquote. So these are, these mannequins are keeping the owner, which is Herb, company. And I guess these mannequins are covered in dust and, you know, just kind of laying around. But Herb was the only one allowed to touch them. And each of these mannequins had its own name and its own backstory. So in the book, when they're having this conversation with Tony, he refers to the killer when he talks about the person who killed all these men, he refers to that killer as Herb. He talks about Brian when he's talking about the good father and the good husband and the pillar of the community. Of course, Tony also claims that Herb was possessed by a demon. But then at one point, he also claims that Herb had an accomplice. And he goes on to talk about the way he why he lived was because he thinks Herb was grooming him to also be um, a killer uh, like him. Like maybe this other mysterious accomplice um, had failed him or was not cooperating or maybe Herb had killed him for whatever reason. None of this has ever been substantiated. I just thought it was really interesting that Tony has his conversation all these years later and he refers to Herb as he is more than one person. So who knows? So we're going to get back now to the case and to private investigator Virgil Vandegrift. So he is digging like crazy, and the deeper he goes, the more he becomes convinced that there is a serial killer that is operating in central Indiana. And he had interviewed Tony Harris at length, tries to get whatever information he can about the location that this Brian took him to. But he only gets, you know, these vague clues, like it's a long winding drive. It's a large property. There's horse fencing. So Virgil decides he's going to drive all over the county, and guess what he finds? There is a whole lot of horse farms up that way. So now all that the police and Virgil can do at this point is to wait for Tony to maybe get a license plate number if Brian ever shows his face again. Well, while they're waiting for Brian to show, Virgil sends Bill Hensley, which is one of his investigators and who also happens to be a former Indiana State Trooper. He sends him out to search the county for matching properties since Bill has a pretty good idea of the roads and the land out in the county. So Bill does come across a property with a sign that says Fox Hollow Farm. And he remembers that Tony said it said farm something. So he goes to check this out. And this place does match the description of large, rundown, and morbid. So he does a little tiptoeing around. He's looking in windows. He wants to see if he can maybe get uh, a look at the pool or maybe smell the chlorine. He's not having any luck. And he does know that he's getting close to crossing a line on what he can do legally, so he decides he better leave. Well, he goes back and he looks up the property, and he finds out that it belongs to Herbert and Juliana Baumeister. So Virgil goes, goes you know, above and beyond, and he gets someone to go take aerial shots of this place, and then he shows them to Tony. Unfortunately, Tony doesn't think that that's the place, because he doesn't think the driveway looks long enough. So we work through the winter of 1994... No Brian. Tony's pretty much convinced that he is not going to see this Brian again. Uh, but the weather gets warm and surprise, guess who Tony ends up running into at a gay bar? Brian. So Tony gets the license plate and gives it to Virgil. Now in one place I read that he was too afraid to get the license plate. So he asked someone else to get it. In some places I read he got it. Now keep in mind, after the little interview that I just told you about in the book, 
supposedly Tony was seeing Brian this whole time and refers to him as Herb as well. So I don't know how much of this is true or the timing, um, but regardless, he gets a license plate number one way or the other, and he does give it to Virgil. And of course, Virgil finds out that this car is registered to one Herbert R. Baumeister, whose address is, of course, at Fox Hollow Farm. Virgil now takes this information to Detective Mary Wilson at the Indianapolis Police Department. So Mary, who kind of started out as a beat cop and worked her way up, uh, she had formerly been in the sex crimes division. So this is good because this gives her a knowledge of the pathology of sexual criminals. So now she is in the missing persons division. On November 1st, Detective Wilson, along with Lieutenant Thomas Green, go to the Save-A-Lot store and ask to speak to Mr. Baumeister. When he comes up to meet them, he greets Mary very warmly, even gives her a handshake. Detective Wilson dives right on in and asks him if he frequents the gay bars. Of course, Herb denies it. She goes on to tell him, well, you know, I have multiple witnesses that say otherwise, and I have one witness that gave me your license plate number from one of the parking lots of one of these gay bars. This point, Herb goes ahead and admits, I do go from time to time, but, you know, my wife does not know. So, duh. But anyways, Mary tells him that she is looking into the missing men, and she suspects he either knows something or is maybe even involved. And she asks if she can search his property. Now is when Herb clams up, and he says, any further questions you have, you can give them to my lawyer. When Detective Green and Detective, or I'm sorry, Lieutenant Green and Detective Wilson get back to the car, Lieutenant Green says to Mary, not only did Herb seem insanely nervous, but that he was one of the weirdest guys that Lieutenant Green had ever seen. Now, Mary, instead of going to the lawyer, she goes directly to Julie Baumeister, who, as the co-owner of Fox Hollow Farm, can legally give her permission to search. But Julie is stubborn like Herb and says no. And here's the kick. Apparently, Herb had told Julie that he had been falsely accused of theft, and if the police should happen to ask, that under no circumstances should she let them search the property. Not to be easily thwarted, Detective Wilson tells Julie the real reason that they want to search the property. Not surprisingly, Julie is shocked, but she still refuses to let them search. So Detective Wilson left her a card and said, please call me if you change your mind. Now, what Julie hadn't told them was that not too long before this visit, her son Eric had found a skeleton on their property. This skeleton was a complete skeleton and it was only partially buried. When Julie confronted Herb about it, he says that this was one of his father's dissecting skeletons that he used to practice on and that Herb had buried it uh, after finding it when he was cleaning out the garage. I don't know about you, but I have no idea why Dr. Baumeister would have put one of his dissecting skeletons at the farm because he is passed away for a while now. And so what, Herb has just had it with him this whole time and moved it? Um, don't you think Julie would have noticed that? But for whatever reason, she buys it um, and doesn't, you know, think anything of it. Except now that the police have come and said they suspect her husband has some involvement in all of these missing men or these bodies that have been found on the road. Y you would think that something's clicking in the back of her head saying, um, you know, dissecting skeleton? Really? So not surprisingly, things are getting a little unpleasant at Fox Hollow Farm because there's police pressure. Things are going financially well at the stores at this point. All of this is kind of building up, and this marriage is now starting to show some cracks. 
And it gets bad enough that at one point, apparently, Julie called Detective Wilson and blamed her, her and the police, for pressuring, for accusing. They're the reason that there's all these troubles in her marriage. In fact, what I read was that, you know, Julie practically screams this at Mary over the phone. Things go on a little bit longer, and it isn't until June of 1996 that Julie finally wakes up. Because leading up to that, both businesses are failing, home life is unbearable. Both Herb and Julie, separately, without the other's knowledge, had begun divorce proceedings. So June 23rd of 1996, Herb and his son Eric go to visit Herb's mother at Lake Wawasee. Julie takes this opportunity to call her lawyer, Bill Wendling, and asks him to please contact Detective Wilson. She is ready to talk. The day after being contacted, Mary Wilson goes to Fox Hollow Farm. Along with her are two um, Hamilton County officials, Captain Tom Anderson of the Sheriff's Office and Detective Jeff Markham. They are, shall we say, a bit skeptical. Anderson seems pretty sure that the remains that Julie is talking about are just going to end up being animal bones. Directly to Mary's face, he says, these suspicions are, quote, bullshit. So Julie is there with her attorney, Bill Wendling, at her side, and they lead law enforcement to the wooded backyard where she points out the spot that two years earlier, her son had found the skeleton. So this yard looks normal to glance, but as they're kind of kicking through the grass beyond the patio, they find a bone, about a foot long, and it's charred. So still not sure if it's human, they start looking around the immediate area and realize that many of the pebbles and rocks surrounding them are actually fragments of bone. So lawyer Bill Wendling is watching the police scoop up chipped and broken bones, and he looks down at his own feet and realizes that he is standing on bone chips. This is a place where the Baumeister kids have played their little children's games, and there's bones. He bends over and picks up human teeth. Now, at this point, if this were me, I would be like, dudes, I'm out of this yard. God bless Bill Wendling. So despite all this, these bones and teeth, these two county people are not convinced that they're human. But Detective Wilson says, whatever, we're going to take these bags of evidence. And she takes them to forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki at Indiana University. And his answer comes back pretty fast. He says they're human they're recent, and they've been burned. So now police are returning to what appears to be one of the worst crime scenes in Indiana. Other officials are now joined in, including anthropologist Naraki and his two assistants. So this anthropological team starts putting little orange flags into the ground wherever they find a bone fragment. In just half an hour, 30 minutes, almost 100 markers are down. I can just picture in my mind this little section of yard with these hundred little orange flags marking places where human remains are found. This dig continues outside, and meanwhile, detectives go inside. And here they find the mannequins, the wet bar, and the pool, just like Tony had described. They find something else. There is a semi-hidden video camera that police are now suspecting might have been used to film the strangulations. So they do find a bunch of tapes, and um, one of the uh, law enforcement officials says it was mind-numbingly boring to go through these, and he had never seen so many episodes of Dallas in his life. So none of the videotapes that they found on the property contained anything other than tapings of TV shows. This is going on 
And Julie is starting to get really anxious about her son Eric's safety because she knows that if Herb finds out what she has allowed to happen there, who knows what he might do. So she gets a local prosecutor and a county judge to draw up custody papers to remove Eric from his father's custody. Herb does make some kind of effort to hold on to his son, but he fails. And of course, at this point, he has no idea that his secret is literally being uncovered back at Fox Hollow. He thinks this is just a custody action taken by Julie to counteract his latest divorce actions. Back at Fox Hollow, they are finding many, many bones. They're finding them in compost piles. So the investigators start wondering, how could he have killed all of these men and his family not have known what was going on? So it turns out, after they talk with Julie, that sometimes for several months at a time, mostly in the summer, she and the children would stay with Elizabeth Baumeister at Lake Wallasee. So now it makes sense that most of the disappearances happened during the warm months because the family was away. There's about 60 diggers at the property. Most of these are off-duty policemen and firemen. So for the first couple of days, they produce about 5,500 bones, teeth, and bone fragments. According to Nal Rocky, the anthropologist, that would make up about four bodies. While they're doing this dig, the neighbors from an adjacent farm come to tell the police that they think that they have found bones in a ditch that separates these two properties. So the investigators go to check this out, and what they find are many rib cages and spines. And some of these are sticking up from the mud and are really pretty visible once you know where to look. So they start shoveling around in this mud and they find more bones. And they also find empty cans of Miller Genuine Draft, which just so happens to be Herb's preferred imbibement. And they find some handcuffs. So by the time they are done exhuming this area, the 140 bones that they found, they estimated to make up another seven bodies. So now we have the estimated death count to be at 11 men. Bear in mind here that these 11 bodies we're talking about, that they believe these bone fragments and rib cages and spines all equal to, these 11 are just what is found at Fox Hollow Farm. If we are to take into account the nine bodies that were attributed to the I-70 Strangler prior to them purchasing the property, Fox Hollow Farm, that would put his count of victims into the 20s. So you might be wondering, well, they found 5,500 bones and that was only four bodies and here you only have 140 bones and they're saying seven. These are large bones, entire rib cages and spines, like I said. So these are not little fragments. These are big pieces of the human skeleton. By September, the anthropologists, using dental records, are able to positively identify four of the men. These are Roger Allen Goodlett, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel Resendez. At that time, the rest of the remains were still waiting to be identified. Later on, they identified another four, but that at the, at the time left three of the suspected 11. And of course, it's possible there were even more. So you might ask yourself, where is Herb? Well, he up and disappeared from Lake Wawasee. So one little clue that the police got came from Herb's brother, Brad Baumeister. He said that Herb had called him from Fenville, Michigan, and said he was on a business trip and he needed some money. So Brad sent him the money, but then found out about what was happening at Fox Hollow 
and then Brad immediately called the police. So it appears that Herbert left Wawasee and headed north and arrived in Fenville on about the 28th of June. The following day, he drove to Port Huron, where he again called his brother Brad. Now, by this second call, Brad obviously knows what is taking place out of Fox Hollow Farm. And since he had talked to police, they instructed him to tell Herb that, that the police wanted to talk to Herb. Well, we kind of figure Herb isn't going to want to do that. So instead, he goes up into Canada. The Ontario Provincial Police say that they think he arrived in Sarnia on June 30th, that he spent a few days driving east along Lake Huron to Grand Bend, Ontario. There, in Pinery Park on July 3rd, Herb put a 357 Magnum to his forehead and pulled the trigger. His suicide note mentions the failing business and the irreparable marriage as reasons. He did not mention all of the human remains that are being found at Fox Hollow Farm. His final words in the suicide note were that he was going to go eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep. And uh, this murderer of men made a point to say that he was only going to put one bullet in the gun so that after he was gone, if a child should happen to come across the scene and find that gun, the child wouldn't accidentally harm themselves. I'm glad that a child couldn't find the gun and hurt themselves, but this is a man who killed many, many, many young men. And apparently he has a line and hurting, you know, allowing a child to get hurt is a line he can't cross. So we do find out um, that later, before he died that same night, um, a Canadian trooper had found him in his car parked under a bridge and asked him why he was sleeping there. And he, you know, claims he's just a tourist and he's grabbing a quick nap. And the trooper said, well, you know, this is not a safe place and you can't, you know, stay here and, and sleep. Later, this trooper also says that she did note a suitcase in the back seat and what she thought looked like a pile of videotapes. So private detective Virgil Vandegriff later will wonder if maybe these tapes were the footage of the murders he committed at that pool. And he says, um, quote, we will never know for after he died, there were no signs of the tapes on him nor in his car. He must have tossed them in the lake before he shot himself. And perhaps it is for the best. So there has been some conflicts about the way Herb was found. The first person to, the, to discover his body says that there was no gun. But the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department says that they did collect a gun from the Canadian authorities. So obviously there was a gun somewhere and someone found it. Who that was, I'm not sure. In the end, the police were never able to definitively prove that Herb killed all of the men whose remains were found at Fox Hollow. There's also been no other credible suspects. As far as the killings along I-70 between 1980 and 1990, the road that Herb had traveled over a hundred times where the victims were all strangulated and all known in the gay community, they could not attribute those to him either. But I do not believe that that is just a big old coincidence. So if you are curious about Fox Hollow Farm, it still stands and it remains a private residence. It is owned by Robert Graves, who um, worked on the book, The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm Road that I mentioned in the beginning. I think this is really interesting because if you look back at some other cases, the places where these horrific crimes take place, a lot of times they are torn down. So like Oxford Apartments where Jeffrey Dahmer brutally murdered 12 men, that was torn down. And John Wayne Gacy's house, where at least 33 men 
where young men were sexually assaulted and slain, that was torn down. But not Fox Hollow Farm. It is pretty much in its original condition. That's it for Herbert R. Baumeister, the I-70 Strangler, we believe, and also responsible for all of the bones and, and remains found at Fox Hollow Farm. Only he knows for sure if it was him, but I can say I believe 100% it was him. So if you would be so kind as to rate and review, I would appreciate it. And subscribe, that would be great. And feel free to drop me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, or a case you'd like to see covered. Um, my plan for this podcast is one full-length episode at the beginning of every week and a smaller one at the end discussing smaller cases or mental health issues. Like I said, this week's will be on schizophrenia and, um, and we'll talk about some of the serial killers that have been diagnosed with it. I'm going to end each episode with what I'm going to call the final crumb. And here is this one. If someone tells you that they know a neat trick and it involves strangulation, say no and run like hell. Thanks for joining me. Bye.